Welcome everyone to Be Better Betters. I'm the host, Spanky. Thanks for listening. My guest this week is a dear friend of mine, and he's one of the world's most successful gamblers, not just in sports, but in backgammon and poker. And he currently is retired, and he owns a company that solves math problems related to games for professionals. He has an illustrious career, and we can't wait to hear all about it. Please welcome Jim Pascal. Jim, thanks for coming on. Sure, Spanky. Glad to be here. Well, Jim, let's start off how I start off at every interview. Um, how was life growing up? Uh, typical for a kid back then. I grew up in Irvington, New Jersey. Um, I think the only interesting thing was that luckily um, I had this um, um, feel, uh, innate feeling of mathematics I, I believe things first, well, numbers came to me like before I could talk maybe. So, but then uh, there was a, a particular time and I think I was five years old and I had an uncle who was a, would have home games and poker and I would just be around the table watching. And I didn't know the terms probability. I didn't know what goes, but like, the idea of chance started occurring to me. I didn't know the rules of the game. I'm watching, but like I thought some things were more likely to, to come up than others. And, and I see they're gambling on it. And I wonder if they knew what they were doing. I, like I was five years old. Um, so it, it piqued my interest in probabilities in particular. Well, that's fascinating. So even at such a young age, um, it hits you. You're watching your uncle play these poker games. Um, who kind of taught you? Did you was gambling a part of your family? Did they teach you how to gamble on certain on certain games like backgammon, poker, anything? No, there was no no teaching at all. Um, um, what ha- I, I I guess I think my first introduction to actually gambling. I was interested in math. Like I would always just be doing math. Uh, uh, it was a little boring to me in grammar school, obviously, because I was already doing things that were like years ahead of where my class was super boring to me in math. Um, but uh, I think it was probably not until um, I think it was my sophomore year in high school uh, that we I started coming up with ideas because kids would gamble, we would gamble for anywhere from nickels to 25 cents, whatever. And um, uh, there was a one particular card game. I can't think of the name in particular, but you would deal, get dealt, there was a dealer, you would deal out two cards uh, face up, and then you could bet uh, on a card that had a fall in between those two values. Uh, so then I created different situations there and was able to win money, you know, spending money. Like I win $2 in a day, that would be a big deal then. So uh, <laughs> then I remember with it, with dice, I created a situation where, okay, would, I would explain to people in case they didn't understand the combinations on a dice. And that obviously the seven is the most likely to come up. It will come up one out of six times, six combinations. Five, an eight and a six, would be five combinations each. But I created a, a proposition that I would bet them that I can roll an eight and a six in less throws than they could roll back to back uh, two sevens. It didn't have to be consecutive, right? So um, now the trick there, and, and <laughs> the trick there is simply when I say an eight and a six, well, until I get the eight or six, I have 10 combinations for it. And after that five, right? Once I got the eight or six, I need the other piece. So they had, they start off, they need a seven, which is only six combinations. And then when they get that, they have six. Well, the math comes out clearly that when I got 10 combinations followed by five, 
it's it's going to be the lesser number of rolls in the long run than the six combinations followed by the six. But I was I was able to get everybody who thought I was crazy and would, would take that bet. So they were my first introductions to actually me gambling. Uh, and then um, I think it was not that many years later. Back then, like it was seen, every every uh, Italian barber in Jersey was uh, also a part-time bookmaker, sports betting. So uh, our barber uh, did that, and and at the time uh, they started. It, it seems funny now because it's that many years ago. But there was actually in the NBA some player props on how many points, just on the points of a player would score over and under. And um, what they simply did was take whatever player's average was and just put that up as the line. Like there was no other variables, right? Nothing else, nothing can go wrong with that. So, um, so that was my first, I believe that was the first time I ever saw an angle of sports betting. Um, and you know, that went on for some time, so. Of course, the amounts I would bet were <laughs> not a lot. You know, I remember even when I first started teaching school, uh, I start I teaching math and coaching. I had five classes a day, average of forty-four students, and then I was assistant uh, varsity basketball coach, and I made four thousand dollars a year. Um, so obviously, <laughs> gambling wasn't going to be like. I couldn't gamble for much, uh, but anyway, that's what the, so that was the beginning of, of my gambling. Uh, so so you, cr school. Yeah. You, you created these games, Jim, um, like these are like games to try to hustle other students. Um, were you always yeah. thinking <laughs> of, of, you know, like a friendly hustle? I'm not trying to yeah. call you a hustler, but at the end of the day, you know what I mean? You're trying to create these scenarios. People thought you were crazy, but the math is obviously in your favor. Were you always thinking like that? Is that, is that something that just goes on in your head? Um, where yeah, you think I mean, yeah, it was how to take the math and, um, you know, just make the work in your favor. Yeah. Uh, and as far as creating things, um, yeah. Uh, if I, like I said, with, with the with the NBA um, player, the props, there was nothing to create. I mean, I just saw the big advantage there. But as far as those original games in school, yeah, it was just uh, just kind of math tricks to have an edge. Gotcha. So let's talk about before you start teaching now. How about through? Let's talk about gambling through college. Um, okay, how college, is that? Yeah. So actually, uh, my family was very poor. So was the whole neighborhood. So in Irving, New Jersey. So there was no, um, I didn't have much money. Uh, uh, luckily, going through Montclair State undergrad and then NYU later for grad school. But um, I was able to get through school mainly on playing card games. So I started playing, at the time it was Pinochle and Hearts. And um, so I'd be in the lounge before classes, in between classes, after classes, and playing for money and Pinochle and Hearts, which became just very easy for me to be the best player by a significant amount. Uh, so that was uh, my income through college. And and when you're playing these games, what are, this is, is are these friendly games where you just play with friends, um, or, or well, I mean they were friends, but we gambled. Of course, but, but yeah, yeah, do they realize? Hey, wait a minute! You know, is Jim just always getting so lucky, or does does Jim have? Does he kind of know what he's doing? And we're kind of sick of playing with him because he's always winning. You know that didn't. I don't remember exactly why, but that didn't happen in college throughout those years. If there was a pinochle game or a hearts game, people got would join. They didn't run away from me, and they should have. But um, I, I don't remember that ever happening, that I didn't have games that they were going on in, in the lounge. 
Gotcha. And the stakes weren't that big, like you know, it was just small stakes, but right. enough to be right. able to support yourself. So you go. So do you go to grad school right after you graduate from undergrad, or do you you work out in the field at all? So, uh, so no, I immediately. So at grad school was so I would teach soccer classes. I would go, was involved with the basketball during basketball season at least, and yet I would just then take a bus and a subway over to NYU. Uh, at night for for the graduate classes. Okay, and what year are we talking about when you're going to grad school? Uh, let's see. So around, uh, I would say the year was around sixty six, sixty five, or sixty six. Perfect. Okay. So um. Okay. So so you get your graduate degree now, and um. And and what happens next? Uh, well, I got married. See, actually, <clears throat> okay, let me step back a second. Um, when I was, uh, when I was graduating college, uh, I had already applied to graduates, a couple of graduate schools, uh, to be a full-time graduate student. <laughs> and, um, I... Got accepted. Okay, so uh, no. In the meantime, I was applying for some teachers' uh, jobs. So, uh, so one came through there, and then I wanted to see what was going on with the graduate school. Any way to work this out financially? And like about two weeks before I resigned myself, it wasn't happening as far as full scholarships or something. But I had a very high um, uh, GRA. Uh, GPA, yeah. For math. So I thought maybe something would come through the graduate record exam, GREs. Oh, GREs. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, what happened about well, two weeks before I was ready to start teaching, I got an assistant shift from Princeton, which I was super excited about. Um, but I was still living at home. And my dad, who wasn't that much into education, he was a, a contractor, general contractor. Uh, he said, okay, it's enough. I remember him saying, it's enough. It's long enough to stop fooling around. You got a, a, job, a degree, you can go get a job and forget that. Uh, and he says, if uh, uh, you have to, <laughs> I had to pay, I was going to clear $123 every 15 days. I remember the numbers. That's what I was going to get if I thought. And I had to pay him $30 a week for overhead for <laughs> 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 that home there. So, uh, uh, and he was really opposed and, and like, threatening me with all kinds of things if I took that assistantship to Princeton. So I'll always have my regrets about that because I really wanted to stay in school and become a, a, a math professor more than a I was, wasn't really thinking about gambling at the time as, a, as an occupation. So when you're teaching now, while you're getting your graduate degree, uh, what are you teaching? What, what level of math well, are you teaching? Just high school math. So it was every, whatever, whatever was offered at the time. So mostly I had juniors and seniors. Uh, so it would be what was then called advanced algebra or um, – there was some uh, uh, pre-calculus courses and stuff like that. And then I, uh, I was allowed to form for some seniors were allowed to uh, take an elective. And so I made up a couple of uh, math things, uh, independent math courses where we just covered a bunch of interesting topics. Beautiful. Um, but when I taught there, so I was teaching to one school there for nine years uh still only gambling on the side um and then uh, i took a job in uh, that was in north new jersey i took a job in a high school in east orange uh and there i met a teacher who introduced me to backgammon and that's when the that's when i in a short period of time i found out what was going on over in new york city at, at the time, this world-famous club called the Mayfair Club. Uh, and that's, when the, that's when the floodgates open up now. 
Yeah, I mean, I went over there and I saw these people again. My my eyes were like wide open. Like these people were gambling for these stakes at this game. I could never afford to gamble for those stakes. <laughs> I have no real bankroll yet. Yeah, uh, but I decided. Well, I got. I have to figure this out. So uh, what I did was quickly learn the game from uh, the rule backgammon. It was actually a teacher at East Orange that introduced me to the game. So I already knew the rules. And what I did then was do all what were called hand rollouts. If, if a position looked interesting to me, like I didn't know the answer or what the right play or what the right, what was called cube action, I would go and play it and I would sit there for days and play out positions uh, to get a better grasp of the game and the mathematics of it. And then at the same time, I belonged to the Mayfair and would go over there and play low stakes. And it just amazed me that even the high stakes player and these players were considered the, the best players in the world at the time really were just taking their information from whoever was thought to be the best player there at the time. I mean, it was just basically whoever, whoever they thought was, that was the word, that was the answer. And, um, you know, it turns out to be far from the case. So it didn't take long for me to become a top player. So I quit teaching and just started playing that full time and then going to tournaments. And, so uh, let's digest that now. So this is, this is big because right now you're teaching, you say nine plus years, um, you have your graduate degree. Um, so you're going to the Mayfair just as a side thing, maybe to enjoy yourself, play some games, low stakes. Does somebody start staking and recognizing, hey, listen, Jim, you have some talent. Maybe I could bankroll you or I could free roll you or I could buy a piece of you. How does the bankroll start building up for you to say, you know what, this is it. I'm going to leave my career, my teaching career, and become a professional backgammon player. Well, the good news is at that time, my salary over those actually was like 11 years. Uh, my salary had only increased from that 4000 the first year. 11 years later, I was making 14000 So it, was, <laughs> it wasn't going to become a big, uh, you know, that I had to be, have to have a big stake. I just had to grind it out where I remember starting for $2 a point. Uh, well, when school without our teacher, I was 25 cents a point. And the Mayfair, I, there was lowest gain I could get was like $2 a point. Short time worked up to $5 a point. But in, with that competition, I just was never having a losing day. I mean, the, the discrepancy in the abilities right away was that big. So uh, it wasn't hard to make more money even at those levels that I was making teaching, which is a shame for our educational system because it shouldn't be the case. But yeah, it's, it's crazy. It Teachers yeah. are, are the most underpaid and most um, underappreciated probably occupation um, out there. And I think a lot of people, especially during this pandemic, realize that with all the homeschooling yeah. that's going on. So, okay, so Jim, so, so you're playing this now and, and, and you're realizing you're building up that bankroll. Now, um, you know, any, any, you know, obviously the Mayfair Club notorious for being, you know, not just New York City, but one of the world's um, most, you know, uh, biggest poker rooms and backgammon rooms, um, you know, out there. Um, yeah. A lot of characters in that club. Did anybody, even, even though you were a teacher and you knew your thing, you still wasn't really a gambler at that point. Did anybody take you under, your, under their wing or did you kind of uh, bounce ideas off other gamblers? Uh, how was that camaraderie there at the club? Well, at that time, it was just a bridge and backgammon. There was no poker yet. Yes. That, that came a number of years later. But um, no, I think it was all self-taught. Uh, now, what did happen at that time, uh, the fellow who was considered the best player in the world, the game turned around quickly uh, with a couple of people. They started doing a little bit better with the math. There was no, I mean, nowadays we have all the robots that play. Uh, and then people learn from them. Uh, but back then there was nothing. You just had to try and figure it out yourselves. And uh, this fellow uh, who just died a few years back uh, was considered a top player in the world. His name was Paul McGrill. And he wrote a book on backgammon that immediately became the backgammon Bible. Um, 
he was a very bright guy, but everybody at the Mayfair was, was uh, pretty high IQs on average. And he was very, he, uh, he graduated Princeton at an early age and then went on to teach math at the Jersey Institute for Technology for a couple of years, uh, but then decided to quit and become a full-time background player. Uh, so he wrote this book and um, right away I would take, so every, he would put in problems in a book and then explain why they're correct or not. And uh, one problem in particular in this one section toward the end of the book, he analyzed and said why this certain play was right. And I was curious and I decided again, like I always did was to roll this thing out at home and play for a week or so. And it turned out that it was wrong by a, a large amount. So I already was considered a fairly decent player at that time, was somewhere in the first year at the Mayfair. Uh, but still, there was people with bigger egos there. And when I came back and challenged that 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 concept, that you know, uh, his nickname was X X22. But I said X, I think this is wrong. And then I mentioned to a few other people. And uh, they kind of laughed about it, the top players, and said, well, we'll play a proposition. And this became the first proposition I ever played, which became a big part of my career was propositions. But um, so I played it out. But the funny part of it was everybody there, all the top players, was willing to bet on this other fellow against me. And I could have. Well, Paul wasn't playing me, but somebody else that agreed with Paul. Uh, so he was a top player too. And now I have a situation where statistically I've proven without any, any lack of confidence that I was way on the right side of this. It wasn't going to be a little thing. And yet I was afraid to gamble for what I could have got. I could have gambled probably for, I don't know, that night, probably in the hundred, like four or 500 points, let's say. And, you know, I would have like, had a heart attack at the time. So I played it for $25 a month. And, you know, if I, if I had to do over again in certain situations back then, because it wasn't a situation I could even get unlucky. It was almost like, you know, it, it would be statistically impossible. It'd be less than one out of 10,000 that playing, and they would keep playing if they were winning. So I couldn't lose. And yet I was only willing to play for 25 a point. I won 70-some points before they quit in two days. Um, but what money I could have made as a jump start for my bankroll, and uh, that's all I, you know, that's, I've, I've always been conservative at the moment. It's, it, it can be rewarding in some cases, you know, uh, never to be in a, a bad situation, but I think I took it to the extreme. Um, there is a fellow. Uh, so, so hold on, hold, hold, hold. This, is, this is great stuff, Jim. This, this is unbelievable. So uh, the guy writes the Bible of backgammon, Paul McGrill. He writes the, 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 what everybody agrees he's the world's best player. And you come out, um, re, you know, you're a young guy, not, you know, not old, you know, younger guy, I guess, uh, you know, relatively speaking. And you just challenge the world's best and say, I think this problem's wrong. And all the, all the other pros are taking this guy for you then to play that out and prove everybody wrong. How now, now, now your clout must, must have increased. Now people are starting to say, Hey, listen, you know, this, this guy, Jim, you know, this guy's not a joke. Um, he's on, you know, did that night change, um, everyone's perception of that? Hey, listen, this guy, Jim knows what he's doing. Um, I'm sure it did, you know, but it was a gradual, I mean, this is like within the first two years for sure. Uh, I was, it was hard to say at that point then because all the best players, literally all the best players in the world were in one place because we all studied the game. Uh, and this led to what it did do is lead to people playing propositions because I'm not sure that there was ever a proposition played before there at the time. Uh, but we agreed to this bet. Now, um, so all of a sudden, this was a, a better way to study, and people were always playing props after that. Um, so 
uh, I'm not sure. I mean, my my reputation grew, and then I also got lucky in some tournaments. I would say lucky. I mean, I was playing good, but I outperformed my ability, and so quite a few people already assumed. Well, I'm the most successful. I, I won like three tournaments in a row, which is pretty hard to do. And one of them, the biggest one in the country, was a, a Turnberry Yacht Club. Um, but like I say, that was probably I'm, I'm never going to be favored to win a given tournament. So to win three in a row was was a combination of skill and a lot of luck. Uh, but that enhanced the reputation because that there wasn't as the game grew in popularity pretty quickly. Nobody had many other gauges. If you won money and you were the most successful in tournaments, then you might be the best player. That's all they had to go by. So, yeah, so my reputation grew over this couple of years. A quick question. This guy, Paul, he, he, you said he recently passed. I always find it fascinating how some of these experts, um, they write these books to try to educate. Um, but if, if this guy gambles for a living, um, for him to write a book, doesn't that hurt his urn? Like, you know, Jim, you know, you know a lot of things. I, I, I don't, you know, it, you would be very, it would be so much against writing, but maybe now it might be different. But back then, well, would you ever consider writing a book or to try to, you know, divulge and give out, you know, you lose your edge that way? Well, there was opposing factors. That would be the first thing that would come to your mind, okay? But he also uh, was always at the time considered the top player. Um, even with my success, I would think that because of his book, because of uh, he was already given lessons, he was traveling around the world, he's getting wine and dine. So um, I think the book actually helped him overall. Uh, and he also he felt like, I can educate these people, they'll play better. But there is also a, a, a natural ability in games that people will never reach. Everybody reaches their own level. Gotcha. So he didn't have any concern that he still wouldn't be among the top few players, even if he explained every day of the week to people how to play. Some people just will never reach that level. Now, backgammon is, is one of those games where a lot of the, the you know the rich and famous of the world, you know, they don't care if they lose to, to the top players. So, you know, they they just want to say, hey, listen, I played with the world's best. Um, it was exactly then in the eighties, late seventies, early eighties, it was a jet set game, and I was completely spoiled then because we were also right by Wall Street, and the Wall Street people wanted to play. So I could play, you know, they could know my, my ability and I could still get money games. I was never playing, but even back then, even, I mean, still wasn't playing big. I think like a top stake for me might've only been $50 a point. But again, the, the income from that was certainly better than the, the teaching. I was, I was fine. Uh, uh, it took years for me to move up to any decent size gambling that, yeah. Uh, I think it comes a lot from growing up real poor and just not having the uh, nerve. I, I never wanted to. I wanted to make sure I was never broke again. Uh, oh, no. I, I, and I respect that 100%. There's nothing to be ashamed about. That's fine. Yeah. I, I think that that's the best way to do it. It's better to be more conservative. Um, if anything, and, and even you know, you just don't want to, you know, variants could, could come and get you. So I 100%, I respect that. So, okay. So you're playing at the Mayfair now. Um, and, sorry, um, let me just say, let me, go. before I forget this thought, you know the name Chip Reese from poker? Yes. So he was a legend, you know, I've been there long after him. He was, a, he was a big gambler, fearless. I think. We were friends. We had become friends. We actually met first in some backgammon. He used to like to play backgammon also. But he could have been the top poker player for a number of years, uh, or certainly among the top ones. And uh, this made me think about talking about being conservative because um, there's something called the Kelly criteria, which you know of again, mm -hmm. you know, yes. the, uh, the gambler's ruin type of thing and what, what you should be able to gamble for depending on what age you had. So you decrease your likelihood of going broke as low as, as low as you want to decrease, you know, you can have, you can make it 99.99% chance that you don't go broke if you gamble low enough and you have a big enough bank. 
anyway, this Kelly criteria was a formula to determine what risk you want to take in order to maximize your income. So Chip Reese went out because knowing my conservative, he, he renamed what I did the PASCO criteria, which was 100%, was 100 times more conservative than the average person <laughs> would use in their Kelly criteria. <laughs> I love it. That's funny. Oh man, yeah, it's it's you know, listen, it's 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 I I I 100% understand that. Yeah. Um, okay, so so you're playing at, at the Mayfair now. You're building your bank. Are you doing any traveling? A lot of traveling to play in bigger games. When do the stakes go up now? Well, what happened was uh, I was from the tournaments, and then for some reason or other, I for, I'd like to travel then, and I found that there was other places that they were playing back at. The people, it was interesting that the, the top, all the top players in Mayfair, it was kind of funny because they wanted to stay after the Mayfair. Weren't interested in going around and finding other gambling angles. I can't even tell you why, but I was kind of doing that almost on my own. Um, and I was getting different situations. Eventually, I ended up in, in LA at the Cavendish Club, uh, and the games were significantly weaker. There was nothing like playing at the um, so this was added to the income, and then this, uh, when I was having the success in his tournaments, this woman from uh, Louisville, uh, older woman who loved backgammon, and I didn't know at the time, but she was notorious in backgammon world for top players meeting and making a lot of money. She had two husbands die, both had, she had two oil inheritances from these two. Her name was Martha. And somehow she just fell in love with me. I mean, just as a, as a backgammon personality. So she used to fly me out there every weekend to her house. And if I tried as hard as I could to make her into a real backgammon player, which I wasn't, we were just gambling, but you couldn't. I mean, all, she didn't have any concept of the math. Wonderful woman, couldn't care less with that money coming in. And we just lose shortly in that period of time that I knew her, she would lose more to me than I accumulate over a number of years. Back then. Uh, and then we'd always agree to settlement. She was cute. Um, like one weekend she gave me, uh, she had a card and she never used. It was a, a Rolls Royce and she lost like a million points to me or something. So it was a big number. And, uh, then she'd always want to negotiate. I wouldn't negotiate whatever she wanted to do. She says, you know, I don't use this. You want to take this car? <laughs> <laughs> so I eventually, it took me a few weeks to find out how to sell it. I had no use for this car. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty funny. And, um, but I, and it, when I started traveling now, now I'm playing back out in full time. And I, I had a son who... Uh, I taught backgammon when he was first, I think he was six years old when he first started learning the game. Uh, at 10, he was coming over with me to the Mayfair at nights, bringing his school books. And it was a very intellectual atmosphere. It was really good. They, they all loved him, a little kid that could play backgammon already at a, at a fairly decent level. Um, so... Uh, you know, he was, was over there playing with the best players, sometimes getting a little spot. He'd play for a couple of dollars a point or something. But then he started traveling. He actually won two tournaments. Uh, and um, I was out to Vegas. And, of course, everybody knows the name Stu Younger. Yeah. And uh, to me, I him or possibly one other player, to me, when I always love to – Look at uh, watch people's learning curves in game. How fast they could learn. What ability they really had. And he was amazing. I mean, you could have given him any game, and he could be a top player in a day's time. He was that that uh, intellectually game uh, oriented. So what happened? So we became good friends, and he was gambling with somebody for big stakes, and he was by far the top gin player in the world already probably the top poker player in the world. And now he was taking our backhand. So he was playing this fellow from Chicago constantly uh, for big stakes. And they were playing part of the time gin and part of the time backgammon to balance it out because this guy from Chicago was a backgammon player. Uh, so Stewie said to me, 
uh, you know, he's fascinated with the back end. He said, Jim, you want to help me a little bit with the back end? I says, oh, yes, for sure. Uh, and I started doing that. And it was amazing because he would pick the game up. If I would give him a concept that not many players understood or something, he could take it and ex expound on it. You know, and he could actually uh, come up with different things. So he was becoming a top player pretty quickly. And obviously then killing this guy from Chicago because the guy from Chicago had no advantage in backgammon and would be dead in, in gin. So, but um, my son, uh, so Stewie loved my son. He, he couldn't believe at this age, I, maybe he was 11 then. And he, uh, you know, was playing against anybody in, in backgammon tournaments and having to get edge against most. So Stewie, whose nickname was Stewie the Kid, he would always refer to my son Dan as the kid. And <laughs> and he he tried to encourage me. He says, look at he's 11 years old. I says, let put him under my wing and he'll be the best games player ever was in a number of years and he won't ever have to worry about income the rest of his life. And of course I will, we've always, me and my son have always talked about it for years. Would this been a best, best path? I was kind of like, oh, I don't know about the gambling world. He's so good in math. Let him just go ahead with his math career and everything, which I did. But it would have been interesting. <laughs> so yeah. Unbelievable. That's, that's just a great story. And I know Dan as well. And um, Dan, you know, was a prodigy and still is, in my opinion, is, you know, you and Dan are, or just uh, the best father-son combo uh, easily um, in, the, in, in the gambling world, in my opinion. Any other stories that you might have before we leave the Mayfair Club and, and, and move on to, you know, when you move out west? Uh, see, what happened at the Mayfair, I started, you know, they all, all want to bet sports all the time. So I started, like, thinking, gee, these are, seems like random and because I was always into sports my whole life. So I would disagree with them, think they were random opinions at best. So I would start like, well, don't put a bet in, just I'll, I'll just book it myself with this book. So uh, I started doing that for a few years at the Mayfair. Uh, and then there was a point where uh, I got some people I had met at a tournament called me from California, this couple that just got married. And uh, they said, Jim, uh, there's a great situation out here. Um, come out here and uh, play this fellow. He'll gamble for anything in back end. And we don't think he's a very good player. Uh, so I went out there, and that was my first introduction to come out to California. I never really came back to any extent. Uh, but this fellow's name wasn't his real name at the time. I didn't know. His name was Lee Schaefer. And he was mysterious about his life and everything. And I didn't know and I didn't care, just that he be he was willing to play. Again, I think I was playing for $50 a point, but just heads up all day long, and he couldn't play at all. Just crazy gambling. But had seemed like uh, money was never an issue to him. So it wasn't until much now, all of a sudden, one time after playing for months, he kind of disappeared. And I only found out later that he disappeared because the FBI had picked him up. He was an international drug dealer. Ah. <laughs> I had no clue. And later on, in the world, when the World Championship came over in Monte Carlo, and I was over there for a few, a few years in July, I met people who, he says, oh, God. Yeah, he was over here all the time. He used to have the habit of handcuffing his suitcase, his briefcase, to his, his arm with full of cash all the time, infinite supply of money. And so he was over there playing very often, months at a time, for big stakes. And, uh, so whatever I made off him was pretty minuscule compared to what I had found out later on. Amazing. Let's talk about now. Now you're getting into you're, you're supplementing your back cabin income now with sports betting. Um, what, what, you know, how does that go? Well, the first thing I was asking my son uh, like a week ago, like, what was it? How did we begin? Because he was he was uh, with a uh, 
some big equity firm in Beverly Hills when he got out of uh, when he got his math degrees. Uh, and he was working for them. I think he started off like 140,000 a year, but he was making them so much money. Uh, and um, I, we, he didn't, we didn't think it was fair. And then he wanted to do more and, and with the company and they were hemming and hawing. So anyway, he came over to sports betting with me, which I had started that year. So we're trying to think back to what a first, and I think the first thing I ever realized was it involved the NBA and um, uh, the, uh, different sports books would offer second half lines on, on the NBA. And it, it seemed to me from what I could see, they were offering almost more as hedge bets. Now, I don't know, know how far back in the in sports betting you go, but did that ever seem where there was a time when it was very naive? Now I'm talking about 30 some years ago. No, that's before my time. But even okay. you know when the, when the offshore world started, a lot of guys would base their second half line based on, on their full game chart. So yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see that that, that was happening. Um, yeah, it seemed like, and it seemed like people were, you, it didn't seem like anything sophisticated was going on that would be moving lines. It seemed like people were, oh, I got a great position. I can take the opposite side and have a middle, you know, that type of thing. Uh, but but what, what that would cause then was the, a warp second half lines, that if you just approach it from what the likelihood of the second, doing your analysis, what the likelihood the second line, half line should be. They were pretty weak. Uh, I was finding that uh, the first year me and my son did together, I was finding a ridiculous amount of actually unders for the second half of these books that were very good. And uh, so I started playing them and we gradually built up uh, playing for a little bigger as the time went on. And uh, our ROI, the lines were so bad that our ROI was certainly into the teens right away. Um, Fascinating. That's just unbelievable. So, so yeah. you're earning, you know, 15, 16, 17% ROI. Um, you know, these are unheard of numbers, uh, you know. Yeah, now you know, they certainly are. Yeah. 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 So, so, and, and you're doing a lot of your betting now. Now we're getting into like the late 90s, early 2000s or, or when yeah, you're, you're, yeah, let's see. So I would say now it was like, uh, and now we're still back 30 years ago. So Okay, so we're talking late 80s, early 90s. Late 80s, right? early 90s. Okay. Now when does a prop betting start? Okay, so the um, the next thing that we found is how many books. It's amazing we think nowadays, but back then they weren't afraid to take what we call correlated bets. Uh, so I think our next step up before the props was uh, was mainly football with the correlated, you know, the the um, the line to the total. Uh, so um, that was a big income, and and even now, even nowadays, to some extent, you still see that with college football, which is completely amazing to me, you know that you will still find situations where a team might be a 35-point favorite and there might be a 52-point total or something on the game, a huge favorite. And you can still find places to, uh, to play the favorite to the over and the underdog to the under. Which we, won't, so we, won't mention, we, we won't mention those places, Jim, for the benefit of uh, – No, uh, no. I, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes they're there and they're gone. You know, of course. All the Absolutely. Um, but, you know, for the listeners out there, they definitely do still exist. That's yeah. for sure. So, okay. So, then so the and then the props. Okay. Talk, let's talk about the props. Sure. Okay. So, really, when my son and I expanded really into really what I thought was an income uh, and could – drift away from backgammon for, for a number of reasons. Uh, but um, a couple of places don't even exist anymore. Like remember the World Sports Exchange, was that still around when you were? Yes, yes, I was a customer of WSEX. Okay. 
and um, uh, remember, does Olympic even exist anymore? No, not anymore. Not anymore. No, Olympic is yeah, Olympic is not anymore. But Olympic, I was also a customer. Well, they were two, and then a sports one. Did they exist? What was that? Sportsbook.com. Did they exist? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm sure they're completely different now, but those three places would offer in the NBA would offer props, especially the Greek or the Olympic, would offer props on every aspect of a player. Um, so I think the first thing I happened, the first NBA prop I happen to remember was with Shaq, uh, the differential in his, his average home and away. He was much more of a homer then. Uh, so there were some angles, I, and they were some. And, and again, we were getting up numbers that were either based on the per person's averages, uh, and of course, this expanded to rebounds, assists, and everything later. But as far as if we just take points, the 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 the, the prop makers were putting up just their average, or or sometime warping it based on their recent few games uh and obviously this is not any kind of real analysis there's so many other variables involved in what a player's number should be uh so um first started with the shack thing and then uh as the places expanded all the offerings they had i remember a real beauty um uh, whoever Shaq's opponent was on a given night, they actually had, this was only the Greek that offered this. They offered over, under, on minutes played for a player that night. So right away, I'm like, wait a second. The, the, the over, under for the minutes of some, somebody guarding Shaq, how do you think that was going to work out? You think he wasn't going to get in foul trouble like 80% of the games? Yeah. Right? So, you know, I mean, so they were like, yeah, they were like, they were just like printing money at the time for that. Um, and then, and then we got into deeper analysis of a, a, a number of, there's a number of variables that I'm sure still can be used today. Um, and, and I'm sure it's a ton, it's a lot harder. In fact, when we quit, I think our ROI was down to like eight to 10% which is, uh, sound, sounds fantastic, but uh, we were spoiled over the years. Yeah, so. my favorite, my fa one of my favorite ones is when you got a, when you got a 50 to one ROI, 5,000%. Can you describe that one? Oh yeah, yeah. So this was a hockey situation uh, in the <laughs> NHL. Uh, this was a W sex, right? Uh, you know, I don't remember for sure. Gotcha. Could have been. It, 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 if I had a bet at the one site it was, it might have been that. But it might have been a number of different sites because remember after the uh, when paper head shops started growing, mm -hmm. they didn't know. You had hundreds of people that became bookmakers that didn't have any idea. They thought you become a bookmaker, you make money. What, what yeah. else is there? You automatically make money. <laughs> so. There would, there would be, I mean, this would work every day of the week to a certain extent, but there was like maybe one day a week in the NHL where there might only be two games. And they had something that the line that the bookmakers put up called a salami. That means the total number of points scored um, uh, in, the, in the full amount of games. That was called a grand salami. So we were allowed, and also this place took what was called leverage if bets, meaning that you could put any amount on the first end. I'm gonna bet. I'm gonna bet a, a proper, or I'm gonna make a bet on this event A. If I hit that, then this second I have a, a, a amount assigned to, to the second bet, and if I hit the second bet, I can assign a a, to the third bet, and so on. Well, what we were allowed to do was bet $5 that the one hockey game went over its total. Okay, so there was two games going on that night. So if we hit the one game, our bet, we had a bet that came alive. It's an if bet. So if you hit one, then you have bet on second. Which was also we assigned $5 to over the second game total. All right? 
Gotcha. Okay, does that make sense? So, yeah, we have $5 on the first. If we lost that, we lost $5. If we hit that, then we were up $5, and we had a $5 bet on the second game. Uh, they can be going on at the same time. It's just a net bet that's locked in on it. So now, if we hit the second bet, we're up $10. If we lost the second bet, we were zero for it. So, but now, if we hit these two bets, we were allowed to bet on something else, which we made the Grand Salami, which we bet over the Grand Salami. So the problem with that was that any time those first two games went over, 100% of the time, the Grand Salami went over. And we put $1,000 on that, the maximum bet. <laughs> so... So the math came out where half the times, uh, half the times on that night we would make, we would lose five dollars. So half of five is our negative equity. There's two dollars and fifty cents. A quarter of the time we would break even, win the first, lose the second, and the remaining quarter of the time we would win a thousand. <laughs> so, That's great. That's so at least, Frankie, I know how good a career you've had. Have you ever found anything up to five thousand? <laughs> no, no, we never. I we never. We never would even think to parlay the uh, the grand salami to the uh, to the only two totals on the board. But it's 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 just it's unbelievable how you guys uh, find these little niches and then and you're able to capitalize on these things. You know, it's um, much fun. Besides making money, it's it's much fun. Uh, I think some some people made my uh, my son in the sports betting world a vacuum cleaner because he would go into any sports book and see he used to look at any kind of loophole or or math angle that there was in there, uh, and because these were almost always smaller markets, not always but almost always smaller markets, uh, they were more likely to be inefficient. Um, and also, your income would be low. I mean, well, I don't know lower because your ROI is so high. But we were never, there was never a case where we were moving or, or making big bets. or It just didn't, because they, they weren't even offered. I mean, there might have been a rare occasion. But, uh, but it was just the, the, the high ROI that made it really productive. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, any other stories that you have? I know there's several of them that, that where you found the best of it. I just love hearing these. I could hear these all day. So Estella, uh, uh, it was a it was a, a legal sports book in in Canada, and I would say that had to be that could be 20 years ago now, uh, and. Uh, they were uh, they were just offering the standard fare, many NBA flower props and a bunch of other stuff. And uh, so we got a capture there, and um, typically we would kill the place. And uh, eventually, after weeks or months, we'd have to cut off. Um, and then uh, years later, through a uh, well, first through a mutual poker friend. Uh, that's one of the top poker players in the world. Uh, uh, um, the Great Dane, his nickname is Gus. Um, but he introduced me because uh, a friend of his was the fellow, was a young kid who had owned that site. He introduced us and we just, you know, got to sit, talk for 20 minutes that we were both involved with sports. Uh, then uh, maybe a year went by, and uh, I was at the uh, another poker uh, friend's uh, house in, in Bellarm, California. Um, a well-known poker couple, uh, maybe the, the most well-known poker couple was Phil Lack and Jennifer Philly, the actress. Uh, so we we're at their house, and uh, this fellow uh, Bob, uh, was there too. And now we got into a more serious conversation, decided maybe we'll do some stuff together. He was at that, now he was a sports better. So uh, we, we met for lunch, and uh, me and my wife, Patty, and um, 
this whole kind of, so we're talking about different aspects of the sports betting. He was mainly involved wholly with the NBA and was building programs and becoming very good at it. And uh, he knew that we were, me and my son had done props. And he said, well, yeah, I mean, I, I know. And Gus had told me how good you guys are at these props and everything. He says, did you ever hear of this other group uh, from Arizona? Uh, I said, no, I didn't really, I, I didn't know there was any other group, you know, like really doing what we were doing to any extent. There might have been some people out there, but nothing that I knew of. Uh, he said, he says, well, I don't know how good you guys are, but these guys were ridiculous. He says, kill me every week. He says, in fact, this gave me encouragement to look into actually becoming a better and not having a bookmaking side. So I actually encouraged him to, to go to the other side. He said, I never found out who they were, he says, but they had to have a crystal ball. They just, they, they just killed me. So uh, I said, gee, that's funny. I don't, I have no idea, but I guess that's a possibility. He says, Jim, I don't know you and your son, but I don't think you could do any better than these guys ever did. So, uh, so we, we agreed to, to get together again and put together some stuff. Uh, but then when we left, my wife turns to me, she says, should I have said anything? I said, about what? I don't know what you're talking about. She says, the Arizona. So it turns out that I forgot my son was living there at that time for three years. <laughs> That's there. So, so it was us. And I didn't even know it. I immediately called Bobby, and we had the biggest laugh about that. I said, Bobby, that was us. I didn't realize it. So, That's funny. So, That's funny. It's crazy how you inspired, um, um, you know, one of the world's uh, most successful um, NBA players to start wanting to, to go down that route. Yeah, um, super bright. And, and it was, didn't take him long to be – because he was fearless, so it didn't take him much a, a long time at all to make ten times whatever I would make. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and of course now he's out of that world. He he could retire for ten lifetimes. Jim, you know it's fascinating um, all, all your stories and how you've come up in the business. Can we can you talk about you know what you're doing now? You you know you you formed a company that helps yeah. solves math problems. Yeah, mostly because uh, I became I, I more interested maybe 10 years ago in poker, mainly because I knew a lot of them, the top players from backgammon and uh, whatever. And I decided, I, but again, my math curiosity was how good are people actually playing poker, the top players, just like I felt like with the backgammon uh, years before. So I started studying poker without really playing it. Um, uh, <laughs> that was similar and then my wife kind of enjoyed poker so we started playing in small tournaments, small cash and everything um, and uh, so so uh, then of course I proved on poker and so studied more and everything and did some analysis for, for some good players um, and, and, and then uh, like just got I don't know, for whatever reason, I just wanted to concentrate on stuff. So I retired about six, seven years ago now and just put together this front because people were always asking me, how about this? What do you think about this in poker? What about this in backgammon? So I would love to do the analysis. So I figured, well, let me just make it a, uh, you know, just form a LLC and just form a company and just, just do that. So I just consult with people now. Gotcha. Yeah, it's um, you know, given how long I've you know I've been in the game for for a decent amount of time, Jim, and you know I get a lot of accounts and a lot of people give me accounts, and I don't really mm -hmm. give accounts to anybody. Um, there's there's nobody I, I've ever you know given accounts to because I don't feel as if anybody out there is is able going to be able to maximize my accounts more than me. Um, that that's true except for one person. And 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 um and that's that's you know that's you and, and your son Dan, um you guys even if I if I give you a piece of the account you guys are are you know I I I consider myself really good at what I do, but um I you know when it comes to the prop world and when it comes to 
you know, you guys print money. You guys are the, some of the best, if not the best in the world at what you do. And, um, you know, for the years that we were partnered up, um, it was always a pleasure. You guys, um, you know, you, you helped with my prop parts of my accounts. I know we've you know, we've been very successful together and I thank you for all the time that we, we've shared together. And, um, and you know, anytime that, um, that I ever have a question or that ever I have something, you're always there to answer. You know, I consider you a great friend and, and, um, I really appreciate you, you yeah, coming on. Or anytime you, you know, we'll always, in fact, you know, Dan, I'll talk to you sometime and, Sometimes somebody not be doing anything and all of a sudden look at it's like get that bug again and then you know not at any any continuous basis but he'll say something if he sees something we always give you a call. Oh, absolutely, and, absolutely, and, and and you know like I said, um, if you ever call me and you say I found something, you never even have to explain it to me. And again, I I, I trust you blindly, and you're the only guy in the business really. Um, that I could say that about, um, that I believe and I'm convinced and I just know for sure that you, any accounts that, that you and Dan ever take, um, you're, you're probably the only people, in my opinion, that I, I believe uh, that I trust more than myself. Um, and that says a lot, you know what I mean? Because I'm not, you know, I'm not really, I, I take pride in what I do. So um, for me to even say that about you guys um, is just a testament to how great at is at what you do and how and how much of a reputation and how you just crush like, you, know, you absolutely crush bookmakers when it comes to prop betting you are unbelievable you and your son the apple didn't fall too far from the tree obviously and and you guys when it comes you know the word has always been around that father son prop team um you and your son, you and dan jim and dan are are a force to be reckoned with so I thank you for all the years that we've been together and I thank you for coming on and sharing your story and sharing your insight here with the listeners, Jim. It's such a pleasure to come on. There's one last question remember, I have for you. Go ahead. Do you, one thing before, you remember, because talking about working together, you remember, I'm pretty sure the first time we ever did anything together where we actually played with some of your accounts or something that I, I'm pretty sure this happened like the first week we actually lost. Um, we didn't. We weren't accustomed to losing too often. But I think the first week with you, I believe we, we lost, and we were so upset, like you couldn't care less. You know, you're on the right side, but we were so upset. We were apologetic, like, "Thank you. It shouldn't happen." Yeah. Like, uh, what was my reaction? Like, what was my reaction? I'm trying you, to. You got a kick out of it. You would just say, "Oh, don't be silly." I, of course, I know what side I'm on here. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, you were apologizing to me, and I'm like, Jim, I, I, I've been in the game for long enough. You don't have to explain these things to me. I understand short-term variance, and I understand. Don't worry about it. I wouldn't. I'm not, you know. And it's funny because a lot of betting partners, they give us accounts, and they don't understand that, listen, okay, we'll have losing weeks, um, but we're not going to have a losing season. Um, so, so, you know, a lot of people don't understand that part and, you know, it'd be hypocritical of me for me to not understand that if I'm actually trusting you to be able to, again, like I said, I don't give accounts to anybody except you guys. So it's, um, yeah, you, you have we nothing. Hated, we hated to ever lose anything for anybody. Of any course. Time, so. Oh, same here. And, and, and obviously you were, I mean, I think you got the biggest kick out of it. I, I thought because you I, I because you. You, you you've never you know listen Jim I, I have all the respect in the world for you and you called apologizing to me and I thought it was funny like <laughs> how were you gonna apologize to me buddy I have nothing to apologize for what are you doing? <laughs> you know you do everything you can't control the outcomes but no I, I I thought it was pretty funny yeah that was that, I remember that um Aww. but Jim but before we go I like you know the name of the podcast is Be Better Betters. A lot of, you know, recreational gamblers, maybe guys that are coming up in a business, guys that want to kind of maybe cross over to become that semi-pro or become a pro. If there's one bit of advice that you could give to those listeners on how to be a better better, what would it be? So what would seem obvious but might not be so obvious of people is that you have to find ways to determine that you're on the right side of the bed, okay? So you're going to have to know the mathematics of gambling, okay? You're going to have to understand what ROI or return on investment. You're going to have to, like, do a little course in, in studying 
what it means to be on the right side and by how much. Then you're going to have to, uh, this is not for the faint of heart, because then you're going to find the statistics and charts and whatever to verify the fact that you're always on the right side. Because you know that things are dynamic. They're not always static. You might have an edge in one situation and things might change or the lines might get better or whatever. And then you have to make sure that you so say you always want to keep record and see where you stand. Uh, then you have to be able to find places that you're going to be betting and know how to research them and look for the mathematical. I mean, that's the way I would approach it, is to look for the places. And it, it takes a lot of research sometimes. You're going through a book and one book after another and seeing what they actually have to offer. And is there an edge? You don't want, what you don't want to do is be like 99% of sports bettors do. They watch, they have opinions, and they think they can win off their opinion. Like the line maker They'll give, you know how many people give obvious reasons, oh, uh, this is a lobbying, or I'm going to bet this because of this. And I look at them and think, you mean you think that the line makers that do this for a living don't have any idea of the, the things that you just mentioned right now? <laughs> yeah. You think that that's not built into the line? So don't think, don't even be that you can just bet on opinions on games. And, 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 and come out ahead of your opinion. Your opinions are very unlikely to be better than the line makers. So you have to do some actual work. Yeah, and it's gonna be a lot of math and a lot of uh, statistics and then researching places that might be softer than others, the lines. Well said, Jim, well said, I love it. Thank you again so much for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, and looking forward to uh, our meals out here in Vegas when things open up again. Oh, man, you and me both, my friend. You and me <laughs> both. Tell Dan I said hello, Jim. Okay, I will. And tell Be Patty good. I said hello, too. Thank you, brother. I will. Be Take good. Bye-bye. 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 Man, that was really fun. Jim is one of my favorite guys in the business, or outside the business, for that matter. Um, his son, Dan, is a prodigy. Super smart, super sharp, great guys. It was great for Jim to share his insight on how he spent all these years as a professional gambler, both in sports betting and backgammon. Um, such a great guy. Hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. Thanks so much for the time. Until next time.